From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big hello to all of you, of course, catching us on one of our affiliate stations, uh, the podcast, TalkZone.com. Uh, those of you who take the program with you wherever you go on your mobile device, using the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, both terrific apps and both absolutely free downloads. Uh, those of you catching us on the live uh, live YouTube stream, and uh, hello uh, again to all of you in the uh, the live chat right now. Oh, please take a moment and uh, on the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, please hit the subscribe button. We've set a very modest goal of 10,000 subs sometime in 2017, and only you can help us get there. So again, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, the YouTube channel, and click on subscribe. And if you like what you hear, please hit the like button and uh, leave some comments. Uh, however, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Alan R. Warren is standing by with a true crime that shocked this nation. I'm speaking of Canada, where this program originates. And Alan is here to describe the secret life of serial killer Russell Williams, who was um, a pillar of the community, uh, uh, an elite pilot of Canada's Air Force One. And uh, we'll get into this heinous crime, the abductions, the rapes and murders that were unleashed on an unsuspecting community. Uh, next week on the program, Morgan Reynolds, former chief economist with the Department of Labor during President George W. Bush's administration and uh, the founder of NoMoreGames.net, uh, will be here in the first hour to talk about the deep state, the shadow government. And in the second hour, our paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Uh, incidentally, uh, Sunday, April the 2nd, uh, you've heard me speak over the years of the mighty Aphrodite, my lovely bride, these last 17 years. And I mention her, of course, every week when I sign off. Uh, she's going to be behind the microphone, guest hosting this program, Sunday, April the 2nd. Mark it down. Uh, I'm taking the night off and taking the boys to see the zombies uh, in concert here in Toronto. And... Um, Again, the mighty Aphrodite will be in the air chair hosting the show, and this is going to be great fun. And I know she is going to uh, to be terrific. So I hope you'll all tune in and support her. Al Warren is a, a true crime author for R.J. Parker Publishing, as well as a contributing writer for the True Crime Case Files magazine with his master's degree in music, minor in criminology from UW, and recording and edit sound engineering uh, Juno Award-winning Bullfrog Studios in Vancouver. Above Suspicion, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams is the book. And, uh, Alan, we are uh, pleased to have you on The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, good. Thank you very much. This is a, this is a story, a true crime uh, story that really touched a nerve in this country. I mean, all, obviously, serial killers, all murder is, is heinous. Uh, but because of... Russell Williams' background, as we mentioned, and flew VIPs, including the Queen, Prince Philip, the Governor General, the Prime Minister. Um, this guy really had a double life. How did? How was he able to fool so so many people for so long? Was he just a complete sociopath? I mean, he must have presented very well. Uh, he presented uh, excellent. Um, I, there was even times when. Uh, he, um, when he committed the second murder, um, what he had done is when he had um, kidnapped the girl, basically, taken it back to his house, uh, tied her up, beat her, and raped her for eight hours, then left her and went to work. And w so within an hour, he had a meeting with um, the uh, security, um, just another interview. And uh, even talking to the security officer, um, said there was just no sign. He wasn't uh, upset. He wasn't tired. He wasn't stressed. He was perfectly calm. All right. Well, that kind of gives us some insight into to him, and we'll come back around, obviously, to these heinous crimes. But let's go back to the beginning. Uh, he was born in England, but was there anything in his upbringing, in his childhood, uh, that would uh, hint at you know the development of this this monster? Well, that's a tough one. You know. 
um, when they came to Canada, um, he was six years old. His younger brother um, was four at the time. Um, but his parents um, were involved in a swing club. So the club, basically, all the parents would get together, put all the kids in one house with a babysitter, and they would all swing with each other. And eventually what happened, uh, within a year, um, his dad left his mother for one of the other ladies he was swinging with. <laughs> so I, I'm not sure if that's really enough, but in the 60s, that was still pretty controversial. Sure. And, and in fact, what had happened was the, the um, mother took the two boys and left because it was, there was too much talk. It was just a small community, all military people, and um, it was just too much pressure. And, you know, it, it just wasn't allowed in the 60s. That was just unusual. Uh, family emigrated to Chalk River, uh, as you write in the book, and his father yeah. was a metallurgist at, at a nuclear yeah. research facility. I mean, this, these were these were very accomplished people. Oh, yeah, yeah. There, you know, the family was good. Uh, there was enough uh, money to live well. Um, uh, they, were, they were brought up quite um, conventional, as in, you know, going to school. And, and uh, there did, both of the brothers did very well in school. Um, they, were, they were also well-behaved. There was no issues with them. They, not like they got into fights. They didn't have uh, any issues. Whether it was the swinging parents or not that kind of threw him into this, it's really hard to say. Uh, he attended um, uh, high school here in town at uh, uh, Birchmount Park Collegiate in Toronto. Uh, delivered the Globe and Mail. You know, uh, took piano lessons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he belonged to the school band. He, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, he was a typical kid. Um, uh, and this is kind of a strange thing that happened um, when the mother left the father, who had. Uh, hooked up with another mother. Um, eventually, that his father and this other lady moved to New York, leaving the mother. The mother ended up hooking up and marrying this lady's husband, ex-husband. Mm. So they switched partners. That is bizarre. But again, yeah. I mean, <laughs> certainly nothing, you know, on the surface you would think that would... Uh uh, you know, lead one, you know, to, to become such a, a heinous killer. Uh, although, is it is it possible that in his eyes, women became somewhat dehumanized because of these relationships? Well, you know, that was um, kind of, I, I talked to two different um, psychiatrists, a couple of uh, people that were involved, and um, there was talk that his father used to beat his mother, and he used to see that. And his father used to like to wear woman's clothing. So uh, in his eyes, at a young age, he was watching his father um, push around his mother and wear woman's clothing. You know, it's got to have a big impact. And then all of a sudden, within a year of them being in Canada, the parents just switch partners and move. Alan R. Warren is my guest, the author of Above Suspicion, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams, still obviously very fresh in the minds of um, our listeners here. Uh, talk about his time at uh, Upper Canada College here in Toronto. He was, um, he was a bit of a prankster, by all accounts. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually talking to his best friend at the time, who actually still considers himself his best friend, um, um, they sort of had a, um, um, uh, a dorm, and he would used to he used to do things like he put plastic over wrap over the toilet and uh, um, put things in people's drinks, uh, jump out of closets and, and scare people. Um, he was quite a quite a jokester, um, and for the most part, people liked him. Uh, he was also very organized. Uh, he um, run the dorm told everybody when they had to cook, when they had to do groceries, whose turn it was to do everything. He was very much an in-charge person, very organized, very polite, but at the same time, yeah, he was a prankster and 
used to make fun, have, have a lot of fun things. And this is in the, uh, the mid to late 80s. And around this time, of course, uh, his uh, case kind of starts to dovetail a little bit with another notorious heinous monster, um, namely Paul Bernardo. And the, we had the Scarborough Rapist running around in, in the East End um, starting in around 1987. What's the connection there? Well, the connection is that they, <laughs> this is a really another bizarre thing. They were both in the same class, economics class the same time all of this was going on. So, and, and now there's been reports, and a lot of the uh, Toronto and Montreal papers um, claimed that they were friends. Now, Jean Tricur, who was Russell Williams' best friend, said, he denies that. He said that other than being in the same class and maybe going and having a beer, beer or two with the group, they were not friends. Um, so that, I can't really say for sure one way or the other but what a bizarre coincidence and at, at one point um does williams decide i mean he's studying economics for four years and then all of a sudden he you know he wake he wakes up and he decides no i'm going to join the air force when did that happen how did that happen well you know according to his best friend who's kind of the best resource we have um it just came out of the blue um just as you're saying he's taking courses he's totally in one direction, he just came back to the dorm one day and said to his friend, I'm going to be a pilot. And his friend, you know, uh, John said, oh, that's that's a joke, and just kind of laughed it off. And he kind of thought he was getting caught up in the Tom Cruise thing and the Top Gun and that whole sort of scenario right. and kind of laughed it off. But no, Williams switched and went right into the military and became a pilot. And as we shall see when we come back, uh, he was not only fighting fighter jets, but transport planes to war zones, natural disasters, carrying the Prime Minister, the Queen of England, across the country and around the world. Alan R. Warren stays with us. The true story of serial killer Russell Williams, above suspicion, when The Conspiracy Show returns right after this. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Just a programming correction. I um, I made an error. Go figure. That's my second one this year. <laughs> uh, I mentioned, uh, coming up on the program next week, I, I mentioned Morgan Reynolds. Correction. Morgan Reynolds will be on the program on April the 9th, Sunday, April 9th. Uh, next week on the program, um, Freddie Silva, who writes a lot about uh, sacred sites and crop circles, um, uh, and um, I think we're going to be talking about um, his book, The Lost Art of Resurrection. So Freddie Silva uh, will be with us on the program uh, next week. And uh, who else, Albert, next week? It's open Lines. Open Lines in the second uh, second hour. Excellent. Okay, back to our conversation with Alan R. Warren, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams. Now, when you get into the, when you get into the armed forces, and if you want to be a, a, a pilot... Um, particularly if you're going to be in close proximity uh, to VIPs like the Queen and Prince Philip and the Governor General and the Prime Minister, don't you have to be put through like a Briggs-Meyer test or something like that? Uh, yeah, actually, you go through several tests. Um, he had to be tested on all sorts of levels, and um, at, he scored very well. And even talking to his superior officer at the time who promoted him into the position he eventually had, um, he still doesn't know how he he made it through, um, that, and that's questionable. Again, when I when I talk to um, people in the business of doing the tests, a lot of the tests were created out of prisoners, people that had been incarcerated for crimes. So uh, they sort of say it's at a lower level. It should it should be much better than it is. And uh, also talking to RCMP officers that deal with the same type of tests. They said um, they're not that hard to pass. In other words, you can, and the Briggs-Myers test is, um, which was also developed by by um, Carl Jung, was it not? Um, right. If it's a personality test, so if you're if you're a, a, a complete sociopath or a, a, a psychopath, you would think something like that test would pick it up. But you're saying well, there was it, no hint. It, no, because, you see, the problem is the sociopath and psychopath 
tend not to have feelings. They learn to mimic behavior of people with feelings when they're very young. And so they don't really feel it. And these, the, the tests in general are meant to catch that, you know, by asking about cruelty to animals and different subtle ways of trying to see if you have any empathy for something that's suffering. And that's where, the, that's where the problem lies, is because when they learn, such as Russell, to mimic at such a young age, um, they can get through these tests without being spotted. Uh, I want to uh, talk about his, uh, his marriage uh, to Mary Elizabeth Harriman. And right. we didn't hear much about her uh, after, after the arrest. Um, we still don't hear much about her. But I'm just taking a bit of a a bit of a um, kind of blue skying it here but the name Harriman is would is 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 well known to listeners of, of this program as in Averill Harriman as in I believe he was a governor of New York at one time uh I believe he was ambassador to uh the Soviet, former Soviet Union Averill Harriman uh I'm told that um there is a rumor that during um Stalin's alleged psychological breakdown in 1941 that Harriman was actually running the Soviet Union. That may be apocryphal, but I'm just wondering, again, a bit of a, a blue sky here, but did you look into Mary Elizabeth Harriman's lineage? I mean, is she related to the, to the Harriman's? Um, no. Um, no. Uh, they were out of um, England as well. Um part of the BP empire and um, not much more I, not much more is known uh, they weren't extremely wealthy they were um, a middle to upper middle class family um, father was a rep um, a, a fairly decent upbringing as far as we can tell all right and um, I mean did she have any any clue? Or did she have at any point? I mean, was this uh, a complete well, surprise that's, that's to her as well? Well, of the day. Yeah. Um, you know, because what happened was uh, her reactions were not of one that would be surprised. Mm. Um, that, that at the time when he was caught, for instance, and he admitted it, um, the police sent a search party, you know, and, uh, and uh, they had a warrant. So they come to the house, knock on the door, and they say to the wife, well, your husband's been arrested and and confessed to the murders and we have a search warrant and so she got her stuff and left they performed the search and came back the next day what's the first thing she does she calls a lawyer and she sues the police department for scratching her hardwood floors oh my like if if you you know if you're at home and all of a sudden the police come to the door and say they've got your spouse arrested and confessed to murders, and we're going to search your house. I, I, I don't see that being my first reaction. Don't scratch my floors. Quite a pair. Like, hmm. like, that's strange. The other thing is, all of the things that he collected, all of the um, woman's clothing, all the pictures, the films, which we can talk about in, his, uh, in the crimes, were all in duffel bags all throughout the house and throughout the cabin. There was blood as well. The police found he uh, shared a Mac laptop with his wife. And on that, he had thousands of pictures of um, the girls that he assaulted, of him wearing all the clothes, all of that, all on the desktop and all filed by name and who the, who it was. Hmm. So, I, you know, Hard to believe <laughs> she wouldn't have known everything. Yeah. Hard to believe. And, and not only that, the thing is, if you're doing all this stuff, um, I would think that you'd be worried. If your wife didn't know, wouldn't you hide them? Wouldn't you be, why would you just leave everything all over the place? Cause Precisely. If she didn't know, wouldn't you be worried that she'd come home and find it? Um, I want to go back then to his, um, his career trajectory, which, I mean, walk us through how he ends up becoming this VIP pilot to... As we mentioned, the Queen, the Queen, uh, Prince Philip, the, the Prime Minister, the Governor General. How did that happen? It, I mean, it seemed to happen fairly quickly. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, he he um, went in to be a pilot. He uh, uh, went through all the training. Became he was he was considered a very good pilot. He was 
so structured. Uh, the military loved him. He was um, so dedicated, so precise at everything he did. And he transferred. By 2004, he already had his Master's of Defense and had written a thesis uh, to get a doctorate. He was he was 100% dedicated, and he spent all of his time. Uh, when he wanted something, he, he did it. And he would take anything that he could to, to make that happen. It, a bit of a hawk by all accounts because his, his thesis uh, was arguing for a preemptive war in Iraq. Exactly. Yes. Yes, he was, he was totally involved in that. He, he was, um, so he was, like I said, he was so, he was just totally engulfed with the whole idea and, and going to war and, and um, it, it was just who he was. And he was 100% into it. There was no, nothing else in his life that mattered. Uh, so at what point and what year does he start flying um, the Queen and, and the Governor General and the Prime Minister around? Well, he started doing that just in the last oh, uh, three, four years um, when he was at Trenton Air Force Base. He wasn't the commander at the time. Um, but he had passed all the security clearance, and he moved, moved himself up. He was involved in a secret operation for the military uh, in the Mideast, and he came back successful. Um, and um, they were looking, they needed a new leader, and he was one of a few that stuck out. And why they liked him is because he presented so well as, uh, you know, to the, to the public. Uh, anytime he had gone on events or done things, he had a really, really good record. Uh, let's move ahead to 2007. And uh, uh, Williams and his wife moved to uh, the community Tweed, Ontario. They buy a little cottage on Cozy Cove Lane, such an idyllic <laughs> s- uh, setting. Uh, and, and, and then in 2007, we start to hear reports of sort of a series of bizarre break-ins. What's going on? Well, you know, um, what, what had happened was at first uh, they bought a house in Orleans, you know, just a suburb in Ottawa. And his wife was the, uh, you know, executive, account executive for the Heart and Stroke Foundation Canada. So they needed to be there. And when he got um, into Trenton Air Force Base and then he started doing his work, they decided to, to buy the Tweed, Ontario Cottage so that he wouldn't have to drive back and forth all the time. And in, in around Tweed, all of a sudden, um, people were having their house broke into, but nothing seemed to be stolen. And eventually, um, it started to be um, woman's clothing, started being uh, woman's panties. Like uh, his next-door neighbor, for instance, uh, would go away the weekend, and uh, when they come back, you know, their 12-year-old daughter would, come back down the stairs to the parents and say, hey, listen, my, my underwear drawer is empty. And uh, the typical reaction of them was like, did you check the floor or the laundry bin or something? <laughs> you know, a teenager. And um, eventually, this started happening all over the neighborhood. And But it was done very well because a lot of people didn't believe it. At the time, only about 15% of them re- were reported. And, and these... Bizarre break-ins in in Tweed were mirroring similar break-ins that were taking place back in Orleans, where Williams and his wife were originally. Exactly, it, it, it actually they were they were identical, and in both both towns, and um, they became more um, just more often in the Tweed area, and they started happening less in the Orleans area, um, as he got the cabin and, and was spending more time there. Um, of course, the police didn't associate that. And the other problem was the police didn't even tell people. Um, it's not like they put a warning out, oh, by the way, this is what's going on, be on the lookout for a panty prowler. Um, so people weren't aware of all this going on at the time, and some reported it and some wouldn't. It starts to escalate. I mean, first there are the break-ins, and then then he starts to videotape and photograph himself wearing these articles of, of women's clothing. Uh, in particular, there's the next-door neighbors, the Murdochs. Tell me about that. Yeah, the, the Murdochs were um, very close 
friends and um, trusted him. He had the key to the house. They had a 12-year-old daughter, and she would bake uh, muffins for him. He would uh, give her piggyback rides. Uh, very close families. And um, now the Murdoch's mother, stepmother in there, was um, sick. So they would go away for the weekend and spend time with her. And so he would come into the house, and he would uh, take off his clothes, lay on the 12-year-old's bed, and he would uh, put put on all of her different undergarments and masturbate. Oh, dear. And, and he had a tripod set up at the end of the bed, so he would film the whole thing as well as he had a little still camera that he would take pictures of himself throughout. And he did that both nights they were away on the weekend. And then they'd come back, and he'd go over and say, oh, everything's great, and how, how was their trip? And they didn't have a clue. And then when, again, it happened when uh, the stepmother finally died and they had to go up to the funeral. He did the exact same thing. But what he started doing was collecting the clothes as well. And he started collecting pieces of, um, like, um, shoes and dresses and uh, nighties. And he even went into the mother's room and, and, and took her vibrator. It's almost as if uh, he's, he's upping the risk because he's, he's excited by the risks he's taking. And, and that's propelling him to, to go further, to do more. He starts leaving messages now uh, for, right. for, these, uh, for these girls. What's, tell me about that. Well, well, you know, he would, like, for instance, with the vibrator, he would, uh, um, with one of them, he would take a picture of his penis laying across the vi- vibrator, and he would put it onto her computer. And um, in another case, he also would say, leave little notes, like, um, oh, yeah, tell the police, I'd love to show them what, what, what you had. And, you know, he's take, taken about a vibrator or something. And... Um, it kind of was a little bit scary um, at that time. It started turning uh, into a little bit more than just photos and taking pictures. And then he would also go into the rooms and uh, go through their pictures and take pictures out of their book, like their photo book, and leave it on the bed open so they would know it. And, and meanwhile, uh, back in Trenton, Russell Williams... Uh is in charge of thousands of military women and, and men and women. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, as he got promoted throughout, the um, break-ins increased and the risk, like he started getting more and more um, aggressive and more more into people and letting them know that he'd been into their possessions. And then even to the very first attack was when he came home from Alaska on a trip. He was just promoted as the wing commander. That was his very first attack that we know about. Uh, that was Corporal Marie France Como. Actually, that was the first killing. That was the first murder, first, right. First attack was the Lori Malakoff. Uh, and what uh, I, I don't want to get uh, uh, too too graphic um, as we describe some of these heinous crimes. Um, yeah. But, but the attack on the first girl. What were the circumstances? Well, basically, he would go into the into the basement of the of the woman's house, like he did with Flory, and he would hide um, and wait. When they came home, he would attack them in some way, um, wearing a, a mask so that they wouldn't see his face. He would blindfold them, tie them up. And then he would assault them. And with Laurie, he assaulted her about eight, nine hours. Oh, now, he didn't rape her. Uh, there was no sexual contact in that way. But he would wear their clothes and beat them and just have them tied up and, and film it. And it was a, a kind of a weird event because he wasn't raping them. Now, it, it led up to that with the next couple, but the very first two, he didn't. All right, we will uh, take a time out. Uh, this is Grizzly Stuff, um, and uh, we will try and avoid some of the more graphic details. Alan R. Warren is with us. The book is Above Suspicion, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams. Back with more on the other side. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Loose lips sink ships. 
and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Above Suspicion, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams, Alan R. Warren is uh, with us. And uh, this is uh, part of the Crimes Canada True Crime series. True Crimes That Shocked the Nation. This is uh, Volume 16. Um, before Williams actually kills his first victim, uh, and these, uh, I mean, was he ever interviewed by police? Was he ever approached um, in connection to either the break ins or this first attack? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Actually, even the second attack. Um, actually, even the third. It wasn't until the fourth attack that they um, brought, well, he became on the list. And that was only by accident because they had set up a roadblock um, in the area where they had, you know, they had a witness of, about a truck being parked not too far from this woman's house. And so they were just doing a, a you know, stop and, and look, and they were looking for a certain tire, certain truck, certain vehicle. And he happened to have that same vehicle. So they spoke to him, just like everybody else, took his name, license, and he became on that list. But it, it, it was completely by accident. Uh, again, I don't want to get into the, the, the graphic details, but his first victim, uh, murder victim, uh, Corporal Como, um, how, how did um, how did he uh, first meet her, and um, when did this heinous crime take place? Well, he met her because um, they were on a flight together. Um, she had worked at the same Air Force base, and she was a the same sort of thing. She 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 had the same job. She would fly dignitaries, um, and she had just done a big world trip and uh, come back, and she was a co-pilot with him on one of the trips. That's how they met. Um, other than that, we don't think they had much of a relationship. But he had um, waited outside of her house, just like he did with the other victims. He would wait till they're gone. He would break in. He would go through the bedroom and the bathroom to make sure there was no man living there. It's really important. And then when he decided to do his deed... Again, he would do the same break-in, wait in the basement, and uh, when they came home, went to bed, and then he would uh, do his attack. Um, she didn't report for work, and um, she was discovered, I, I guess, inside her house by her boyfriend. Exactly, and that was the uh, next day, actually, yeah. Uh, and, of course, uh, not going into the details, but she was sexually, she was raped, and the, the entire heinous affair was, was recorded on videotape. Right. Now, you know, what made it also more heinous is because he would, he would tie them up to the bed, for instance, and for instance with, with the corporal, and he would film the whole thing. Then when he killed them, he would stop and take pictures of them bleeding out oh, on, the, um, on the floor. Uh, his second victim, Jessica Lloyd, uh, similar yeah. circumstances, same M.O.? Exactly the same. Now, on this one, he almost got caught. Um, he was waiting. She had an empty field beside her house, and he parked his truck there, and he waited. And then he broke into the basement and uh, waited for her to come home. And um, while this happened, um, a police car drove by and saw the vehicle. And she went to the front door of Jessica Lloyd, and knocked on it, got no answer, so left. And then Jessica Lloyd came home maybe ten minutes after, and then he killed her. It was it was that close. And uh, this is in Belleville, correct? Yes. The Belleville police were notified twenty four hours within twenty four hours, and um, they conducted ground and aerial searches. Yeah. How was she discovered? Well, you see, and that's, that's what this shows up. She, she wasn't discovered immediately. And what he had done was he went to his other neighbor, Larry Jones, uh, who was a retired grandfather, 
and um, asked Larry Jones about his hunting and uh, <laughs> what he liked to hunt and where, he, where his camp would be when he hunted. And uh, what he did was he took her body and dumped it near the camp where Larry Jones was hunting. And while Larry Jones was out hunting, he had broken into Larry Jones' house, took an old jacket and gloves of his to leave it with the body. So the police suspected Larry Jones, searched the house, even arrested him and his wife, took him in for questioning. The whole neighborhood was looking at the neighbor. It took, it took any suspicion off anybody else. Um. They, uh, the police, however, received uh, tips from some motorists, which ultimately right. led to an interview with Russell Williams. Uh, we're, we're coming up on a break here, but um, just describe how that uh, how that happened, how that fell out, and uh, well, it, we'll continue on the other side after the break. But let's start it now. Yeah, sure. No, they they what they done was when they were canvassing the area, they had not only the police officer, but the two other motorists that happened to see that same truck. And they went onto the empty field, and they, the prints of the truck tires were really clear. So they took matches of those, and that's when they set up the roadblock. He happened to be driving that same truck that he had drove to her place to kill her, and his tires were the same, and he had the same type of truck. So they put him on the list and, and called him in. First, they watched him for a while, along with the other people on that same list, and then called him in for questioning. How did that interview go? Oh, let, let me uh, jump in here. Uh, we will pick that up on the other side. The, uh, the interview with police and Russell Williams, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams by Alan R. Warren. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show after this timeout. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, uh, welcome back. Alan R. Warren stays with us. Above suspicion, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams. This exchange uh, during the interrogation uh, with Williams and the um, the investigator is is quite remarkable. Just take a few moments and, and walk us through that back and forth leading up to Williams' confession. Yeah, it was. It was uh, overall. It was ten hours, um, and they called him at his home and asked him to come in um, for questioning. And why he did, without a lawyer and by himself, um, we're not sure. Maybe he was just believed in his own mental capacity at the time. Um, and Staff Sergeant Jim Smith was the one who did the interrogation. And um, when he first walked in, uh, he was very confident, you know, he chewing gum, throw his jacket on the counter and um, his gloves. And he was just, um, you know, just and he was very, you know, sharp, you know, and the detective would say something. He'd go, yeah, check. No problem. And um, really came on strong. And uh, uh, and even the detective asked him, you know, have you ever been in a questioning before? Have you ever been through any sort of interviews with police? And, you know, and he grinned and he would say, well, you know, of course, uh, I was interviewed with the NIS, you know, National Investi Investigation Service, and had top clearance, right? So he was very, you know, smug. Uh, and then he was asked if he'd ever been had his, red, his rights read, and then... He said no, and then he read him his rights. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it was just sort of, but he he obviously didn't think they had the goods or something. I, I, I'm not sure why he was so confident. And, it, and of course, it fell apart rather quickly. Um, it didn't take long before um, he realized, uh, because they had the tire print. And, and they, this is the other thing, too. The shoes that he wore to her house, the, the last victim, when he uh, pulled into the field, and it was still kind of snowy and winterish, he walked over to the house, of course, and broke in and did his thing, and he also took her back to his place. And that's where he killed her, back in his own tweed cottage. But they had the footprints of both him and her, Jessica Lloyd, and the tire. 
and they had that. He was wearing the exact same shoes that he had did all this in when he came to the police for the uh, interrogation. Uh, he he was even uh, when when Smith asked him, "Are you able Are you able to help us along with this investigation?" Would you, and and uh, William said, "Sure. What do you need?" And he said, "Would you give us you know blood samples, fingerprints?" And he was totally cooperative. Yeah, totally, totally. No, I, and he had to know. Um, even with the the corporal, when he was attacking her in her basement, she fought back. Um, he got cut and left blood all over the place. Um, he had to know, being um, in the military and being so sharp, you know, he wasn't a stupid person. He had to know that that, that he's leaving his blood. He's uh, how he could be so confident. Uh, I still don't. I still don't get it. And then he drops the bombshell, uh, Smith does, on Williams, and he says, we, we have the, the tire tracks, we have the foot impression, and it's a match. Right, right. And that was it. And, and you know, the first thing Williams was worried about was his wife and what's going to happen to her and their house. And if he could guarantee that um, she didn't get any sort of, nothing bad was going to happen to her, um, he could he could help her, and uh, so eventually, after being asked for a little while longer, um, where's the body of Jessica? He just said, "Well, he got a map," hmm. and pointed it out. It was that simple. What comes next is is kind of strange. I've never read something like this before. And and um, Smith asks Williams to do something uh, very unusual. He asks him to write letters of apology to his victims. Yeah. Why did he do yeah, that? that? I had never heard of that before until talking to Smith. What he, a Part of his investigation and what he did as a habit was when he got a confession, in order to confirm that confession in case it gets thrown out in court or some technicality, is he would come back and say, well, I think you should do the right thing, you know, and, and write write a letter of apology to the family, to the wife, to the whoever, about who you assaulted and killed. And he asked him a few times and leave him for 20 minutes, come back, ask him again. And then eventually he did. He wrote letters to all of the, the victims' family. And they, they reprinted in the, in the book. Um, anything, anything jump out at you in, the, in these letters? Well, I think the, the biggest thing is... Um, with the first assault victim, who's still unnamed, um, he, he his first letter to her was, um, I know you'll turn out and grow up to be something great in your life. And at first, you just sort of, it just passes by because of all the other letters. But when you find out later that he takes the, like a plea, like the crown decides to not charge him with anything to do with pedophilia, and he would say he's guilty to the two murders, two assaults, and the 80-plus break-ins. And as long as they kept it out and didn't mention it. And now, now, why they did this, we don't know. It seems to be that they did it to protect the military, the military image. Ah, interesting. Okay. What was what was the reaction um, from the uh, na- the, minis- the Ministry of Defense? Uh, was there any reaction from the, the PMO after Williams was named as the uh, the accused? Well, they took it. Um, they tried to speed it up. They replaced him almost immediately. They tried to um, not talk about this. And they also did things like, um, well, of course, they melted his uh, all of his different uh, medals. They burned his uniform, and they took his name off and, you know, of course, took away his rank. And it was almost like he didn't exist. And that was really the, the most noticeable. And the other is the way they kept the pedophilia out of it. He had over 45 garments from young girls, um, the first one looks like she was underage, uh, you know. Um, so theirs was to kind of cover it up right away and try to move on without it happening. And um, 
going back to the letters that he wrote, these letters of apology, and, and when you look at them, they, I mean, they're, they're basically form letters. They, they all sort of begin and end the same way. I know, you know, to Roxanne Lloyd, mother of murder victim Jessica Lloyd, Mrs. Lloyd, you won't believe me, I know, but I'm sorry for having taken your daughter from you. Jessica was a beautiful, gentle young woman. Uh, I mean, he's, he, he writes the same thing over and over again. But the, the one that he wrote to, uh, to Mrs. Lloyd, um, he wrote something like four or five different drafts. Right. That one, for yeah. some reason, was a little more difficult for him, I, I guess. Not that I care, but um, uh, that it was difficult. <laughs> but I, I'm just wondering why that one in particular. You know, that one, that's a hard one to say um, because he spent the most time with her. This is the girl that he uh, uh, attacked and assaulted for eight hours in her house and then dragged her to his house made made her and then made her shower with him, tied her up and left her there, mm-hmm. and even took off to work, came back and did more. So he spent a lot of time with her, and uh, she's also the one that uh, tried to get away from him. She pretended she was having a seizure, and then he untied her and uh, tried to, uh, you know, m- make her better. You know, I, I, that's the only thing I can think of. Is he spent a long time and uh, kept her around i have no idea why he had a strong connection with her because they didn't know each other um what about the um the the unsolved uh murders the unsolved rapes uh were they ever tied to williams yeah that we see that's the biggest problem right um there's no there's no conviction or anything but there's and also Paul Bernardo, who you mentioned, and his lawyers um, come forward in the last year, all through 2016, and he kept on blaming a lot of girls that were raped and attacked on Williams. Um, it's become kind of a an open ground because they both did much the same thing, blindfolding, um, beating, raping, and leaving. Uh, you, you, who can tell? And they're they're both in the same university, both in the same area. Who did what? What became of um, his wife, Harriman? Well, yeah, that's the thing. She she just um, after suing the police for to fix her floors, which they did, she disappeared. She left her job and um, just left. And um, now. Just in 2016, she settled the lawsuits, which took a number of years because she was fighting under the spouse, the, the you can't claw back type thing. So um, they had sued uh, Russell Williams and her, and it took a long time for the court to say she could be held accountable. And so she had a lawsuit of $7 million and another one of $2.45 million. And she settled them both out of court in November of last year. And we don't know the total sum that she settled for. And she's never done an interview. And she's been in hiding ever since. We don't know even if she's in the country. No idea. No idea at all. Um, She just left. She wasn't there for the uh, trial part, the conviction, any of that. She never showed up. She never. She just disappeared. She took her things and left. They, um, They sold that house as well as the cabin now that's another twist so the cabin in tweed he had sold to the murdochs the next door neighbors right <laughs> and they why would they buy <laughs> the cabin next to them where he actually killed one of the victims right right it just you know plus they, they you know he, this was uh, sold after what, the fact they sold he, yeah my exactly heart. Um, now, they did one exclusive interview with McLean's magazine, and that's the only one they would do. And in that, they said that they just didn't want it to turn into a, a touristy place. So that's why they bought it. Oh, that's well, <laughs> all sure. that's you know. interesting. I suppose that's possible. Um, I, it's, a, it's a grisly story. It's, it's one, you know, it's, we don't talk a lot about it. Um, and maybe part of it is because here was a guy that was considered a pillar of the community and um, was so close to the prime minister and, and, and the queen. I mean, he was flying them around the country. 
while at the same time these horrible grisly things were going on and um, it's it's a most disturbing story and uh, Alan I thank you for joining us well thank you it's been a pleasure Alan R. Warren above suspicion the true story of serial killer Russell Williams that's a tough one a tough one to talk about um, but we have to remember the victims and the victims families uh, my thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Finzel, Ryan White, all of you for listening at home. Back next week with a brand new Graham. Freddie Silva will be here. Open lines in the second hour. Don't forget to hit that like button on the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.